The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Sound of scratching pens, that means we're really prepared. Cool. <laughs> You've got a real fountain pen, too. Yes, and the scratch is coming through the headphones. Yes, that's why I was like, turn around. Like, so that, that it sounds smart already. <laughs> <laughs> that microphone's going to pick that up. Yeah, so. No, that's totally. Oh, just don't whack the table. That's the only annoying thing. Like, like this? Yeah. yeah People okay, cool. do that. They yeah. go, I'm really good. Uh, and I'll be like, so my father, after his second beer, starts pounding the table to him at this point. Okay. Yeah, he's but the, the pen is the, the pen's fine. fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, welcome everyone. You are listening to another episode of This Must Be The Place. You are listening to Elizabeth Taylor of the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT University. And I'm joined today by two guests on my left, although that's irrelevant to our, our listeners here. We have Tom, Tom, what's your last name? Tom Andrews. Tom Andrews. You are a PhD student and a lawyer, loosely speaking, at the University of Melbourne, is that correct? Yeah, I'm a PhD student at the Melbourne Law School. I'm not a practicing lawyer. I'm, I'm writing on the history of criminal procedure. But um, with the person to my left, uh, Dr. Peter Chambers from RMIT. He's a doctor, loosely speaking. <laughs> He's a doctor, loosely speaking. I was just displaying my ignorance of how the law and, you know, how architects seem to be studying for like 500 years. Mm-hmm. It seems to me the same with lawyers. I don't know when they become a lawyer. I just can't help hold myself out as a lawyer for practicing certificate okay. reasons because I don't have a practicing certificate at the moment. Got it. I can't claim to be a lawyer, but I am a PhD student in law. And we have Dr. Peter Chambers. That's correct, yeah. And your specialty is? Um, so I, I teach here in criminology. That's where my lectureship is. And my I teach global crime and border security, which is, you know, shit that moves around and like how agents of state authority respond to stuff moving around. That's observed as a problem or a threat in some way. And that brings us to our topic today. What we're going to be talking about is some other shit that moves around and gets people worried, which is cycling, and specifically the questions of cycling safety, rides on the road. I think the shorthand idea for this episode I had was, you know, why are people so angry about cyclists? But what prompted me to ask you guys to come on the show was a conversation article that you put out, Rising Cyclist Death Toll is Mainly Due to Drivers, So Change the Road Laws and Culture. And in that article, you're talking about what's happening with road deaths for cyclists in Australia. What are the causes? As the title suggests, it's mainly drivers. But how is that covered? It's a bit different to that. Most people then get into the question of are cyclists to blame and so on. So what prompted you starting to ask questions about cycling and road rage? Yeah, I suppose the, the short answer would be to say that we, we still think that the road tolls unacceptably high, given the kind of safety innovations with cars. And also the broader social fact, which I think is sociologically really interesting, which is that average speeds have been declining since the 1970s. So given like thinking about transport as urban transport systems and thinking about cars as their role as a mode of transport there, why is it that so many people are being killed, especially disproportionately pedestrians and also cyclists? And then the longer answer was to do with how this was framed by Bicycle Network and then how that framing was re-reported by The Guardian, which we sort of took offence to. So how was that? How was it framed? There's a kind of theme in in this kind of reporting, which is we need to have separated infrastructure and some kind of Mm high-tech, gadgetory response to these kinds of problems, which firstly, they, they disavow the causes of these kinds of injuries and deaths. And secondly, that in 
disavowing causes, they attempt to both make something like cycling or moving through the city not so much appear more dangerous than it is, but to kind of assume that it's more dangerous than it ought to be and then spend tremendous amounts of money um, either on infrastructure projects or alternatively in the case of high-tech sensors in cars, for example, or on, on the roads. Spending huge amounts of money when the, the root cause of the issue is overwhelmingly drivers not paying attention. So the argument that we're making is that that's a complex sociological issue. That's Why right. is it that like people don't? Cars are safer, average speeds are declining in urban areas, and yet uh, drivers are to blame for at least 79% of accidents with cyclists. And a lot of the reason for that, and a rising reason, is just inattention. So complex sensors in cars or AIs, you know, okay, that's a 20-year maybe. And complex infrastructure, large-scale infrastructure, is going to cost tens of billions of dollars. And just as a reiterate what Tom was saying, it, like, it bakes into the infrastructure the assumption of danger. When it's the car that's dangerous, and specifically the driver who is not paying attention. Right, and dangerous dangerous towards whom? Towards cyclists and towards pedestrians as well, and also other drivers. Mm-hmm. So um, it's not, I mean, you won't find many cyclists who have killed drivers. In I'm sure if we, if we found it, we would have heard about it. You would have heard about it, um, but it's not, it's not statistically significant. So the question is, like, when we have a significant statistic, which is 1,222 untimely deaths on the road, and when 1,100 of those are due to how drivers are driving, and when you add in statistics like 79% of accidents um, involving cyclists are due to how drivers are driving, then the question of like high-tech sensors in cars and separation infrastructure... Do you think this is a way of avoiding a blame or not antagonising drivers? I mean, what do you think is going on with this kind of response? Ooh, do you wanna, I've got a few different things that's been to mind, but... Hmm, I think the first thing to say is it's hard to know what's... Yeah. going on yeah mm-hmm. um, and none of the work that we've done so far presupposes an answer to that but it presents itself as a fascinating question because if the issue is that people aren't paying attention then high-tech sensors and infrastructural investment doesn't fix the problem which is causing the real problem which is people dying on our roads so the question is how is it that we get in a situation where the solution doesn't this proposed solution doesn't align itself with what the statistics say constitutes the nature of the problem. Mm. How is it that changing infrastructure, um, especially infrastructural separation or segregation of different users, solves the problem of inattention? I'm not sure that it it does or it can, but as Pete was saying, it often in the way that separation infrastructure works is that it enables people to pay less Less purposeful attention to the task that they're doing because there's a perception of safety. So that's when we say it bakes vulnerability into infrastructural design. That's that's what we mean by that. And mm. you can also look to, I guess, I'm not an expert in this, but some of the evidence around what does make road spaces safer, it's often not separation. It's things like slowing. And yeah. even that, what's that concept of sort of mixed use? Absolutely. Word? Yeah, exactly mixed use. And I mean, we talk about roads, but I'm sure if you're, if you're a town planner at the moment, you would say, well, like, which roads and mm-hmm. for what purpose? Because different parts of, you know, the urban and suburban areas and regional Australia and rural Australia and remote Australia, what a road is and how it's used. The context of use is like a huge spectrum of different contexts. Um, and obviously nobody would talk about trying to like mix um, my six-year-old son cycling to work with a freeway where people are travelling at 110 kilometres an hour in cars. I don't think anybody's talking about that. But in urban, dense urban areas, which is really our focus of interest, there's certainly a lot of places where it's precisely mixing which has been proven to work better. So the question, I suppose, is like, why is this idea of separation appealing? Mm-hmm.
Part of my interest in this is cycling is the rage that people have or the anxiety around what rights cyclists have on the road is quite similar to car parking, which is an area I look at where, and again, that's more noticeable, more pressing in dense urban areas Mm. where you have in some situations maybe they're taking out or threatening to take out some parking spaces put in a bike lane or maybe they're just even suggesting that perhaps somebody has to pay for parking or something like that. Something that threatens the space that parked cars occupy Mm. in favour of something else and the rage, the um, level of emotion that goes into that. The only equivalent thing I can think of is the rage that people have over cycling. Do you think they're related, Park? Yes. And how? (laughs) This is such a complicated question. And like for people who are listening, I think it's really important to emphasise that these are questions that we're posing and asking, but not exactly. We don't have neat findings and haven't come to conclusions. And I feel like there's an enigma in it as well. Maybe the counterfactual for me is like I spent three years living in Japan. Mm. And you have like in Tokyo, like crazy density. Um, and a lot of cars and a lot of pedestrians and then a lot of people riding bicycles on footpaths and quite often very narrow footpaths which is sort of no footpath at all but um, there's no agro and then coming back here like and being a commuter in the northern suburbs which is like one of the safer places to ride like it's the atmosphere is intense and then you have certain kind of barneys with drivers or you feel like you've been close past or you know you've been deliberately close past by somebody or nearly doored and all these different things so I think it's some, the, the, the short answer is that like it's clearly it's a cultural problem or a cultural issue. And road conditions are cultural conditions. Like there's, a, there's OECD data on traffic accidents, um, international comparative ones, which give you a really clear snapshot. And it shows that bicycles vis-a-vis cars are either like equally as dangerous or cars are up to four times as dangerous as cars depending on road conditions. So cycling in the Netherlands is like much safer than cycling in most parts of the United States, for example. And why that is, is a cultural question in short. But then what is culture and what puts it together and blah, blah, blah. That's where I think it starts to get really complex. We're trying not through some of those things, but we've only just begun. What's your take on it from a, a legal perspective, Tom? Well, from a legal perspective, it's, it's not a particularly complicated question. These are, I mean, some bits of it are insanely complicated and some bits of it are really quite simple what's to me more interesting is in thinking about the role that law and the languages of law play in the way various people discuss these problems so for example i see things as discussions about for example and i'm going to touch a few third rails here Mm -hmm. so trigger warning registration Uh helmets like rights yeah Mm. Uh, those are all property road rules as well road rules yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. so there's like there's a strong and I wouldn't use the word legal, I'd use the word jurisprudential. So thinking about the kind of the way in which people make a practical and, and workable understanding of the way that the social rules operate and the way they understand that operation. So I find that question infinitely more interesting than simply having some kind of discussion about what the, you know, quote unquote correct or official road rules around or, or rules of property or rules of responsibility and blame mm. are in the case of accidents or, or criminal matters i find that question what does framing questions of space access mobility through very different understandings of what the rules are i Mm. find that sociologically the more interesting question so to take some the examples you gave the third rails which are yes as divisive and potentially disruptive as ever 
the rego one for perhaps listeners who aren't in Australia. This has been a recurrent theme around cycling, this idea that, or a claim rather, that cyclists... I can't remember how it's phrased. Is it either that they, you have no rights because people don't specifically pay registration yeah, for a that's cycle? Right. Yeah. But it also flows through to any kind of accidents often. It's like, well, you didn't have... Reg- this would perhaps... I mean, you might have reviewed some of the conversations a bit more. Is yeah. it that this would have been avoided if you had registration or we can't even have this conversation until you have registration? God, I'll see if I can give you, like, the sort of the reasonable version of the argument that I've put forward and then maybe you could touch on the insurance and liability because sure. that's where it sort of gets. That's why I get a bit hazy and I think you're mm-hmm. much clearer on that than I am. Sure. Um, so in the, in the reasonable conversations I've had with people about this, there is the perception that when cyclists are riding their bicycles on the road, then they are asserting their bicycles and themselves as a vehicle. But that because that vehicle is not registered, that it is an unregistered vehicle and that unregistered vehicles cannot be driven on the road. And I have an inkling that part of this is like people have a certain vague memory of like dirt bikes and not being able to ride dirt bikes on the road. Mm -hmm. And this this idea that only a registered vehicle should be able to ride on the road. But then you hit this idea that when I've asked a few people who take this position, do you think that um, if cyclists were registered, then they should be accorded their full legal rights? And that means taking the whole lane they're not so happy to deal with the implications of what that position is. So my my slightly facetious response is that um, the less reasoned version of it is that cyclists should be registered dot 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 and then probably put in camps rather than given a whole lane. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. it's not a, it's not really like cyclists should be registered dot 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 and then accorded their full legal rights as the users of registered vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe one of the radical positions would be to say, yes, register all bicycles and then give them the full lane. Yeah, or maybe it, it's some, sometimes it takes the form, this is less around the accidents front, but in uh, around decisions to allocate space for um, cyclists or whatever, yep. that, well, they don't pay registration, therefore they haven't paid for the road. They haven't paid for the road. Which is another kind of, Huge. maybe an example of this sort of, how it's not just the specifics of how transport or road space is paid for it's how it's understood and talked about because if there's there's a perception that people pay for roads with their registration it it would be long way short of paying for the road but also and this is a cultural transformation after four decades of neoliberalizations is that um, roads are increasingly treated as commodities to which one must pay money in order to receive access rather than being treated as a public good and a utility like owned equally by everybody. That's a shift coming partly from mm-hmm. transport researchers as well. Yeah. And that, I, yeah. I guess on, on some levels it's a pushback against um, the fact that cars have, have enjoyed a kind of right to a sort of socialism of the road, it's sometimes called, that cars can op- occupy that space that others can't. So sometimes this financialization is is to make space for other kinds of transport, but then it does come with, I guess, broader implications of... Well, it's interesting in the sense that roads have been so slow to be ne- to neoliberalised in Australia compared to other things. I mean, we have some toll roads, but if you compare the extent to which, in my world, parking has resisted financialisation, mm. it's extraordinary compared to, say, health or uh, even you know university education, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, that, that old chestnut. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's clearly clearly massive. And there's a whole kind of cultural and social imaginary mm. that like accompanies this idea that when a person has paid registration, that entitles them to use the road. Motorists and cars are kind of like a public 
mm-hmm. but at the same time, a car is both the private pr- property and the, a commodity attached to a person and also a prosthetic extension of that person. There's quite strong psychological research that suggests that when you actually, I'm going to do it on purpose, <laughs> when you bang on someone's car as a cyclist, which I've been, I've done once or twice as a commuter and I've been upset, which I know is not productive and I shouldn't do it, blah, blah, And you're not registered. And I'm not registered. Then that is actually experienced as you banging on the person. I can, um, because this podcast is not censored in any fashion, I'll share a, a story. I was on Ligon Street once and just walking down the street and someone um, didn't like deliberately hit a car they sort of just put their hand on it I think I actually don't know why they did that maybe they were stroking it they thought it was a nice car <laughs> but a man ran across full pelt from the other side of the road and he did that thing where he used the word fuck like a memorable number of times he mm-hmm. said you fucking touch my fucking car again I'll fucking fuck you one <laughs> So, yeah, I'm pretty sure he wasn't really <laughs> just as a car. There That's was so something good. else going on. Yeah, the hybridization of the car and the person. And then that gets really interesting in this in the space. So you've you've got a public of cars yes. that where their owners slash... Um, public of privates. Yeah. That they and you actually touch someone's privates. <laughs> you kind of have. It's their property, it's their commodity, but it's also them. But it's yeah. also an extension of them. And it's also that which extends them. And they've paid that for that part of themselves to occupy that space yeah. and then this is then a cyclist comes along and hasn't paid for anything and doesn't have this thing around them either which makes them first of all more mm-hmm. vulnerable and secondly goes crazy in terms of you were saying like how people understand a road and they tend to assume it's always been that way and I guess we, we don't have to go into the history of it at all but roads if you go back far enough uh, there was always a role for public roads for Congress and ingress, like people did things on the road as well as passing through. Yes. And agress. Is that the wrong the, the word? Etymology is actually of agress is to move forward. Ah, did I say the wrong one? No, no. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, but if we're going to have ingress and egress. And, agress. Yeah, okay. but we don't use it in that way anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Now we just think car, the road is a place to, to move forward. A place to aggress. Rego, registration, that's a whole one-third rail. And then we've got the helmets, which has been in the news recently again. <laughs> it's an interesting one because even amongst, say, transport researchers, you can feel the, you know, the air chill if you bring the topic up. People have very strong views around, should cyclists be required to wear a helmet? And is Australia, we're an outlier in this one, is that true, on having a requirement to wear a helmet? It's fair to say we're an outlier. Yeah insofar as you're required to wear a helmet here anytime you, you know, throw a leg over a bicycle. Yeah. I've been pinged by the cops for it too, as a kid. Oh. So this is probably some like primary trauma. It was like <laughs> this is in, Sydney, in Sydney in Motorvale and I was like riding down to the beach on a footpath with no helmet on and the cop pulled me over and fined me for that. Whoa. Yeah, and I said I usually wear it. I just left it at home. I'm riding on the footpath. It's not fast, but I don't care, mate. I've been pinged, so to speak, for jay. It's not even called jaywalking. I was just crossing the road in the the wrong spot, I suppose. But you know, I felt my. I didn't actually get a fine, but I got a talking to by the police, and I felt like my two two responses, like the my face was saying yes, yes never do it again I'm sorry and inside I'm like wanting to have this whole argument about the whole you know why are you policing me for all this kind of stuff and but that's the nature of um the helmets thing the helmets thing is like 
I mean, it's an interesting that like Australia has this ability to sort of mandate universal application of things mm. like seat belts and voting and helmets, and that that seems fairly culturally compatible for a bunch of different reasons. I my, I go for utilitarianism, and then you say no, it's not that. You know, whereas like a country with a strong tradition of like rights liberalism, like the US or France, they think that's an outrageous infringement on their freedom. I personally think it just must have something to do with being a convict nation. <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> but yeah. then a lot does. I just think it's so curious that in Australia it's easier to culturally imagine touching somebody else's car as a form of assault to the person mm. than it is to imagine trusting people to make informed decisions about risk in their, mm-hmm. yeah. their headwear. I don't want to like descend the icicles of discussing <laughs> the helmet third rail, yeah. but I don't have a strong opinion on it either way. Like The stats bear out that it's not the riskiest thing you can do. With your noggin, there's plenty of cases where you can apply a risk analysis where it's more dangerous to do things yeah. without a helmet. We don't impose them them there. But then again, I've been in some pretty nasty accidents over the time and grateful for it. Yeah, but I agree with that. It's, it's just that it's kind of, I find, and this is why we, we, we return to the fact that it's definitely a cultural issue here that needs to be unpacked rather than a technical one to do with, for example, like, you know, the International Standard Organization and Australian Standards for Helmet Manufacturing. I don't know what's going on at Bicycle Network at the moment, but clearly they think that a city in which all cars had high-tech sensors, bikes were completely separated and we weren't riding around with helmets would be a safe city. So they were the ones talking about the separation and the sensors and stuff Correct. as well, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So there's something going on there, but I don't, really, I don't know. And I think what Tom said is more interesting. Because I, I just think as well with the helmet thing that if the concern is about uptake of cycling and concerns about safety, then we just need to think about the kind of headline statistics we're talking about mm. at the top of the show that overwhelmingly like the, the problem here is driver inattention and putting you know a layer of styrofoam around somebody's skull um, offers a degree of protection, but it, it's not addressing the cause of, of most you know, deaths and injuries on the road. Yeah. How does this tap into things around, I mean, Australia's um, journey, so to speak, for around car safety and the kinds of messages that we have internalised around the key one would be drink driving. Mm-hmm. So that was obviously some kind of shift where it used to be okay to be drunk and drive. I mean, tech, it was on the books, technically it was illegal, but it became uh, randomly enforced. And I'm sure there's some people out there that still think it's fine to drink and mm-hmm. drive, but I would posit that most people think if... If you had an accident with a, a cyclist, even a cyclist, and the driver was demonstrably drunk, yeah. then people would say, well, that was the driver's fault. If they can find some clear thing that made the driver you know, on the wrong side of the law, then it was their fault. But all these sort of more subtle things like, are they paying attention? It mm-hmm. seems like it's a little bit harder for people to take that on. Or it's, does it question the judgment of the driver too much to look at that as a cause? and, and it, rather than just not drinking, you have to actually start paying attention. Is that There's a, I'm, I'm just trying to bring this up here if I can do it quickly because the police have got... Um, this, is, like, this is TAC stuff. TAC is actually quite interesting on this. There's the, um, the Fatal Five. What's that? The five, like drunk, tired or something? Yeah. People need to be conscious of their speed. So speeding, mm-hmm. driving within the limits and conditions. Don't be affected by alcohol. Don't be affected by drugs. Don't drive when you're fatigued. Do not drive whilst not wearing a seatbelt and never use your mobile phone. So Mm -hmm. um, speeding, alcohol, drugs, fatigue, seatbelts, and mobile phone, that's six, the police can't count. 
TAC. Oh, TAC. Yeah, TAC. So, I mean, that's really interesting because, like, the mobile phone bears upon the attention issue. Yeah. But the rest of it is basically, like, yeah, don't be on your phone and, like, don't be, don't be pissed. Mm-hmm. Or, like, off your face. and Which is, like, okay, sure, yeah. I mean, so one of the things that we... I sort of put this to other people now, is that if Qantas and Jetstar pranged five or six planes a year... And Qantas were killing Qantas, the Qantas group, including its subsidiary Jetstar, were killing two or hundred people a year. You wouldn't fly because no. you'd be so shit scared. And, and if, if five said- out of six of those planes were praying because of how pilots were piloting, and to wit, like not paying attention or being aggressive towards other pilots in planes, very serious questions. Nay, a royal commission would probably have to be called for that. But because it's so diffused and so routinized and normalized, and because it's so strongly aligned with cultural values it does not appear of the same magnitude. Because I think there's more than just like, don't be speeding, don't be pissed, mm. don't use your mobile phone. There's something really, there's something going on here about people's relationship to driving and broader our relationships to one another when we get behind the car. Like, there's not only cyclists, but also pedestrians. Greater numbers of older pedestrians are being run over and killed as well. So mm. there's something going on. Mm. Overestimating our abilities has to be part of it. All the psychological research says we do that, yeah. So you... Risk. I mean, that's that that classic story around risk. People will more likely to have a car accident on the way to the airport because they're worried about having a plane crash. But then, because they're in control, they think they must. It must be everything's fine. (laughs) And and I'm not pissed. That's right. And I'm not pissed. Yeah. And I'm not on my mobile phone much. And and um, that the sort of we we tend to like way overestimate our incompetence of as a driver. And then be very disparaging of other people's driving, whereas most people are like slightly below average or something. I think that's yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> no, most people assess themselves as slightly above, above average, average yeah. which is a real mind bender. But yeah, the aviation industry has a very different approach to safety, and also a very different approach to how they apportion responsibility, as I understand mm. it, or mm. liability. Is there a difference? There is, isn't there? When they have something go wrong, I believe they've they've made a, a conscious industry decision around that they don't necessarily go around and blame an individual. They look at systemically what went wrong. Yes. Why is this? Why did this plane crash and what can we fix next time, which is categorically not how uh, road deaths are approached, at least not where cyclists are concerned. And in 2017, there were no fatalities in, like, um, civil airlines, international, global, like, not, sorry, international and domestic airlines. So outside of small planes, like large aircraft, no fatalities in 2017, which is, which is astonishing. And then we look at these posters about, like, towards zero that the TAC is running and it still feels utopian <laughs> but I mean like speaking to the point that you were making is that it's sort of once you see that it's an infrastructural issue and you start applying systems thinking and stop trying to think about intentions and individuals then a different type of solution may present itself but mm. it's like we're a long way away from being able to have that kind of conversation. Look to 
Can we talk to the question of, is it liability, responsibility? So when we have cycling deaths, there's usually, I'm not saying that the police do this or, or whatever, but the question is always, was it, I've seen an idiot cyclist once, was it their fault? Look, that's basic. Whenever you start talking about this topic, that's usually the first thing you get back from somebody. Mm-hmm. But we can use the words liability and responsibility interchangeably. It's perhaps more useful to think about to d- distinguish between criminal responsibility or criminal liability um, and civil liability. So one of them has to do with compensation um, and the movement of, of money in order to you know, enable the rehabilitation of injured people and damaged property. Um, and the other one has to do with, in some broad social sense, imposing a punishment on somebody for a criminal act. And it's, it's interesting that we have a separate set of offences for driving. We don't think of it as falling within the general criminal law, so we have specific driving offences. When did that come about? Um, look, I'm not sure of the precise dates off the top of my head. There's a criminologist at Griffith University who's just about to publish a book on this, but the research suggests that there was a deep reluctance of juries to convict people for driving-related offences um, until driving-specific offences were introduced. So things like corporal driving causing death, for example, rather than um, running a case for manslaughter because juries just weren't convicting even in cases where there was um, legal as well as a kind of moral culpability mm-hmm. on behalf of the person behind the wheel. So that is a, that is a technical that the problem of, of juries not convicting, you can understand that perhaps as a technical question which can be solved by changing mm-hmm. the particular um, legal mechanisms that are at play. But most of the time when we're talking about responsibility, liability, and for example, to go back to registration, we're really talking about civil mm-hmm. liability, which isn't so much about changing the rules of criminal responsibility. Instead, it's, it's just to solve the question of to whom and how is compensation apportioned in the case of an accident. So in Victoria, we have the Transport Accident Commission, or TAC, and it runs a no-fault insurance scheme in the case that somebody's been injured by a motor vehicle. And the reason why that came about was because prior to its existence, when injury or or property damage uh, occurred as a result of people driving cars, you would have to go through the general legal system in order to get compensation from the person who caused the harm. And obviously, that's a tremendously expensive, stressful, and costly process to go through for every small bingle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the kind of the negotiating... Kind of like the cladding thing, but anyway. Kind of like the cladding <laughs> thing. Um, and so that's what, in large part, registration pays for. It recognises that cars cause more damage than other forms of transport, and it's broadly, for physics reasons, linked to the weight of the vehicle, mm. and the insurance scheme charges people along those those lines. So part of when we pay registration in Victoria, a large part of that is paying that insurance scheme. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so well, the you I- pay it if you're a cyclist. <laughs> so is this this is, see, this is the thing: is that I'm I'm increasingly not fond of using identity-based labels to describe people's modes of transport mm. because at the end of the day, what we're talking about is not people's preference for a certain kind of subjectivity. Like I'm a cyclist. I'm a motorist. Um, I occasionally ride a bike. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to drive to work because there's no public transport that gets me from where I live to my um, place of occupation. But I don't consider myself to be like occupying 
the subjectivity of cyclist or motorist at distinct times. I'm just somebody who's trying to get where I've got to go, hopefully safety safely, so that I can get back to my partner and enjoy doing the things that like. Yeah, there's not many other things where you take on an identity so swiftly. Like I'm not, although there are some around choice of coffees. But mm. you know, like, <laughs> this I'm is Melbourne after all. A soy latte drinker or latte sipping, but you don't generally you get to wherever you're going by a certain mode, but you don't have a dialogue where you're defining yourself as a, I don't know, a jumper wearer. Mm. Or a, I sort of or maybe, have a thing for teal jumpers. This is like I've got three of them. But, you know. okay. <laughs> All right, maybe this is, this is out there. It's not as common. That's <laughs> right. put yeah. it that way. Yeah, and it shouldn't be mandated by law. Yes, but we have, we, you don't identify with that, but this sort of thing is, is common in the debates around mm. uh, the third rail issues and, and road space generally. And, and so... It was one of the things which obviously people got really head up about mm. um, with our piece in the conversation was that we were suggesting the possibility of shifting to a model of presumed liability. Mm-hmm. What would that mean? Let's just say that like um, the basic idea is it goes back to say if that cars are 80% of the problem, then we have to assume that cars are 80% of the problem rather than working on the presumption that, you know, at law because both are vehicles that they're equal before the law because in fact because of the vulnerability differential between you know two tons of steel and like 10 kilograms of bike and 80 kilograms of person you have like a systemic infrastructural vulnerability differential so it would be about just realigning this to create a cultural shift whereby there was a recognition that if a person hit a cyclist in a, in a civil case mm. then it would be presumed that they would have liability and then in other words the onus would be on them to explain that they were not liable which is not the same as saying they're always going to be the ones paying. It's saying that no. they're starting from a presumption. What's another example of presumed liability? Um, so the law, the civil law, is, is very familiar with presumptions of liability. Um, they exist in cases where there are known differentials of power. So, for example, in commercial instances where there are some kinds of contracts drawn up between parties where there's an apparent power differential. So for example, if a doctor is contracting with their patient about something outside their area of practice, so it's not just you know fees for medical services, they might wanna, I don't know, work on a housing development project together, then there's a rebuttable presumption in there that the doctor has some kind of capacity to exercise power over their patient. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that's a bit of an artificial mm-hmm. example, but the point to be making here is that this is precisely the grammar of a conversation you have about these issues where you say, look, most of the time um, cyclists are injured by drivers not paying attention. And then the other person turns around and says, yeah, but, but, but what about that cyclist running a red light? And then the answer to that is, well, precisely in this model of liability, that situation is accounted for. Mm-hmm. Because if the person is doing something which causes them harm um, or causes the accident to come about because it's a pr- only presumed liability. Mm-hmm. The presumption can be rebutted. And, and it's not strict liability or total liability. That's right, not strict and total. But they're, 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 they're easily confused. And I got a number of emails from people who were, were sort of aggrieved by this idea that mm. they would be held responsible for their driving as a driver if they hit a cyclist. What specifically was upsetting about that? They thought that they would be unfairly judged? It was upsetting Mm. for them. And then it was very often, like, the counterfactuals that were presented were usually the but, 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 cyclists Mm. do this. And Mm. it was, like, one case in particular I had a correspondence with a man from Canberra. And I know this because he gave his address right down to the unit number, which was quite interesting. It's old-fashioned. Very old-fashioned, yeah. Mm. Um, 
was talking about um, cyclists tearing down the footpath and knocking over old grannies. And that was one of three examples I said. I said, are these, you know, empirical thing examples of things which actually happened, um, or are they hypothetical? That's like slippery slope sort of thing. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Because I, you know, I said, one thousand two hundred and twenty-two road deaths. They're real deaths, and eleven hundred of them are judged mm-hmm. to have been caused by drivers. So that's a lot of people who've actually been killed. And I feel like that that's the disjuncture that you find. And I don't really know what to say if somebody's more concerned about what I regard as a, like a phantom hypothetical where they may possibly be judged in a situation that they imagine would be unfair yeah. rather than someone actually well not just someone, 1100 people people who've died. actually been killed like you know and like I said it's not just I mean you know you might one might have resentment towards recreational road cyclists but that's not everyone who's a cyclist and it, we also have to just keep putting pedestrians back in the picture here as well you know we're talking about like the way in which automobilities render everybody really vulnerable because of how cars are and how people drive cars they've even um, given them a whole new label i don't know the answer to this but when did when did just being a person become a pedestrian yeah. was that was that a thing before cars that this is a rhetorical foul that, audience, no, That's maybe. a super interesting <laughs> question. Right. Well, yeah, I was just walking around and now I'm defined by my lack of car. Now I am a pedestrian. Maybe the, the thing I can say with like, like limited, but limited knowledge is that this was extremely contentious in the United States in the 1920s. Mm. This was like you know, bitterly divisive politics. And this was around parking as well. Yes. Um, so the idea that like rich bastards could like park their car on a public street mm. or run over a child who was playing on the street was considered outrageous. Mm. But there was very strong and very concerted efforts of lobbying during the 1920s in the US. And that was kind of paradigm setting um, because the US was really the, at the forefront of cultures of automobility. Yeah, so, so you saw the, the, the establishment, that piece about the jaywalking, the mm. invention of jaywalking yeah. was a... Cause, and you see that here as well in Australia, the early car, what we would now call car accidents, they always reported them as tragedies and quite visceral, viscerally described a car, the child was um, mowed down, playing on the street, that kind of thing. This is a tragedy and then within a short few decades that's an accident. Accident, yeah. And what's happened is that uh, the child was in the wrong, mm. wrong spot. That's right, so the, the accident is a kind of invention or construction and not a disinterested one. Mm. So it's not a technical and disinterested description of something which merely happens. It's a way of construing something which you know, really hurt people. And in a less, the less uh, extreme version is around parking, that you had this discussion around this rising motorisation in the 1920s, 1930s, and people that had cars increasingly would just leave them all over the street. So this was challenging, first of all, just in terms of space, because it was increasingly difficult to actually get down the street or down the footpaths because of all the parked cars. But then it's the question of are they who's under what conditions are you entitled to leave your car here, mm. and in in many ways a car is a private object that in other definitions would be I mean you can depending on the the country or whatever there's situations where you can privately occupy public road space mm. you can have a stall you can have a fair or you know all all those kind of typical examples but you can't generally like take your washing machine and leave it on the street but the car took on a a special status through that negotiation and redefinition that a parked car 
is uh, considered just a car that's just about to start moving later, so it's part of traffic and it has certain rights to be there. Mm. And that you know, obviously becomes entrenched over, over years. And then if you're now in a situation where you're either because of an uh, interest in, in paying for road space or maybe giving road space to other users, you're challenging that, then you're going back well, well beyond the point of me- people's memories to try and get to a point where you, somebody made up that assertion. Yeah, that's It's right. pretty hard to do. It's an irony that there was a long battle to have bicycles recognised as vehicles uh-huh. in the 1890s and 1900s. Why was there that battle? What was that over? Well, it was basically to sort of, because they're sort of an ambiguous hybrid object, kind of like it's not a this, it's not a that, mm-hmm. um, there, there was there was a lot of legal ambiguity and political ambiguity, and so there was conflict, because in this, it was like public uses of roads and horses and carts and bicycles and cyclists, both penny farthings and then standard um, safety bicycles upset horses. Horses have never liked bicycles. Is a horse a vehicle? Uh, the cart is a vehicle. But not the horse? Not the horse, I uh-huh. think. Yeah. Does a horse have to be registered? Should pedestrians be registered? I think that's... And I think everyone should have to wear helmets and everyone should be registered. That's the, uh, the ultimate outcome. Pedestrians, <laughs> motorists and cyclists, everyone should be hel- Everyone should be registered. And then I guess a- animals are registered, aren't they? They're yeah, sort of, they are. And they're not allowed... I always notice that when you go on the freeways and things that say, no animals pass this point very challenging for someone that questions things it's like well first of all the, do- an the dog's an animal I'm secondly talking. i'm an animal so <laughs> they yeah. assume they meant a farm animal or something on its own on on the road but anyway yeah um, i was also going to say that like you might you must be have some awareness of like on, on average how many square meters does the an average motor vehicle occupy the car itself isn't that big. Mm. It's, it's as big as it seems, I guess. Although they are getting large. They're getting larger. <laughs> That's right, they're getting larger, right? So it's, let's say 2.4 metres wide by five, aren't they? Three or four metres long, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, depends. But like the car parking space itself is about 21 square metres. And that's quite challenging. And when you add in, that's just the space if it was tandem where you could actually just put them next to each other. More typically, every car parking space has a turning circle as well, so it's mm. closer to 30 square metres, so it's bigger right. than, than some people's apartments. So, like, you know, look at, so here, I've just got the square meterage for some of the expensive suburbs, like Carlton North, it's $10,000 a square metre, right? Yeah. Yeah. So but then you park on the street for free, yeah. or, or more or less for free. I think the residents there would be very aggrieved by they have to pay for um, a parking permit there, but it's about $40 a year, I think. But that and land... Yeah, it's land, yeah. and that's where some of that push you were saying around uh, the putting a cost on roads. On the one one side of it is kind of questions anyone's right to exist in public. Another part of it is coming from questioning how guilelessly parked cars occupy that space mm. in very expensive areas. And in my research, I look at who does use road parking space, mm. how much is it worth, and how much do they pay mm. for it. And some of the drivers are that in really expensive areas where the land is worth you know tens of thousand dollars a square meter and you're talking about 20 square 20 or 30 square meters Mm. of space there's an obvious just economic incentive if you have a garage that you're just going to use the garage for storing your stuff or you're converted to a living room Mm. or something like that because that's more valuable to you if you can then park your car in the street for 40 40 dollars and i when i was doing work for city of melbourne on parking asking these kind of questions and this is just advice to them and 
they take it which way, but they're more interested in sort of the opportunity cost that a parking space represents for a city that's getting much denser. They look at road space as an opportunity for green space mm-hmm. and even things like widening the footpath or commercial, you know, outdoor dining and that kind of stuff that they increasingly don't have access to. So they're kind of appraising the public street space in that way. But you could turn it around even more bizarrely and say, like, everyone's entitled to store 20 square metres of stuff on the road at any given time. But the whole thing is if you did that, you yeah. would, you, you, people would be incensed. Right. And, uh, you know, I, think I know it, that's what yeah, I'm saying. I don't know, it's hard rubbish day yeah. in my <laughs> suburb and it doesn't seem to be something that's too prohibitive for at least a week. But in car parks, right? If not in car parks, on the nature strip. Too. Yeah, yeah. On, the, on the nature strip. We like, should put hard rubbish on the yeah, car parks. Yeah, it's a little super interesting to me. Mm. So I mean, what, just for Carlton North, like that's that's over three hundred thousand dollars worth of space. Yeah, that's um. I mean, there's some loose benefits in the sense that street parking tends to f- slow the traffic down so much. So you know, a clearway mm. is a uh, a tier of road where you don't have that parking so much, and that's obviously comes at some expense to the you know, traffic and. Um, atmosphere of the area but it's an extraordinary high value space mm. and this is not unique to melbourne though like mm, any mm, mm. not everywhere that is the experience but it's very common to have an experience that particularly in inner city residential areas that's really valuable space tends to be occupied by storing and that's some mm. of the language we use now is we being like parking researchers but <laughs> there's parking as in like you've just stopped somewhere and then you're going to go later and mm. then there's storing and that's what mostly that kind of parking is around is mm. that you're keep the car you don't even use the car necessarily it just stays on the street and it's, a, it's, it's a strange different. verb isn't it parking yes. like it kind of ex- excerpts it from just regularly just like leaving your shit yeah that's for an right hour or two. <laughs> i'm assuming the etymology probably came from like driving to the park uh there was there is a book that it goes into it and i can't can't quite remember the details maybe i should look it up but it, it had some other weird thing about it might have been horse related or something uh-huh. like that yeah. uh you know, because there was a sort of... And even the word park, as in, like, a green space, is, I think, a relatively recent word. Mm. We'll have to go back and check this one. There's something revealing about it, and it was a conscious decision at some point to start to use that word and not another one, not storage or leaving. Or There were... They did used to have requirements for horse parking, but I don't think they called it... They called it, like, stabling or something like that, because mm-hmm. I've always also looked at pubs, pub history, and, you know... From the 20th century onwards, pubs had to, ironically, from the point of view of safety, you always had a minimum parking requirement for any pubs or bars. We must have at least this <laughs> number of drink drivers. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's Melbourne Cup Week, so all of this, this seems incredibly pertinent. <laughs> I, I grew up near a famous pub in Sydney called the Newport Arms up mm-hmm. on the northern beaches. And like the upper decks were basically just all beer gardens with mm-hmm. big eucalypt trees. And all of the lower decks, like several of them, was a car park. Yep, um, and that would I don't know New South Wales system closely, but yeah. odds are that that's because what the requirement through either mm. combination of the planning permit and the liquor licensing was that you have to provide adequate parking, as you say, to make sure that everyone drinks and drives at the same time. That's right. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, before that, they uh, that seemed to be an extension of having you used to have to require a certain amount of um, water for the horses and stabling and that sort of stuff in order to get a license, but. But that, of course, once you started um, enforcing drink driving laws, and that saw the demise of a lot of country pubs as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, these things are pretty. When you change that, that either the law or the way it's enforced, it has a lot of wide consequences.
responses to your article on road, you mentioned a few already, cycling, death toll and responsibility. What are some of the standouts? So I think it's the same, the person who contacted me from Canberra who was worried about, was worried about cyclists raging down the footpath and knocking over grannies. Um, but the, the, the thing which like sort of stuck with me about that is that the, the person writing to me was actually disclosed to me that um, he had two sons who were very keen road cyclists and that he's deeply worried about them. So he thinks they're the kinds of people that would run down grannies? Well, I asked him that. I said, you know, I'm sure your, your sons are sensible people. Do you really, you know, are you, are you going to say that about your sons? Um, it would seem to me... And then he went on this, there's a litany of reasons why cycling is incredibly dangerous. So is he, do you reckon he's worried? We're going through psychology here, like he's yeah. worried about his son. It got deep. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I realised that there was, you know, it's like the iceberg diagram of the explicit and the implicit. Like yeah. there was a lot of implicit shit here. And I'm obviously not his psychoanalytic psychotherapist, so I didn't want to like get down and see what was behind the ego defence mechanisms. But it seemed to me like he wanted to... <clears throat> He was, he was obviously prompted to email me directly and respond to the article. But the patterns of response was like a litany of the reasons why like cycling is incredibly dangerous, um, insisting that the design of bicycles hasn't changed since the 1970s, um, and also so they're basically unsafe in any road conditions at any speed. They hoon that's around. Interesting they reference to Ralph, Ralph Nader sort of language, isn't it? Oh, maybe that's just me. I'm okay. referencing <laughs> Nader there. Um, yeah, okay, sorry. Uh, uh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, and that they sort of more or less should be that should sort of more or less be banned. But then, of course, he's got these two sons who are out there, and I guess he's really concerned. Mm. So it kind of came from a place of anger, but also I think concern. And there's something very male about that. Yeah, yeah. Was yeah. there any anything in the responses that suggested that gender was a part of this conversation around cycling? Not in his case. But to broaden the point, I think we think that like class and gender are like huge aspects of it mm. yeah, of, of the of the, the general conversation because. Um, we'd like to suggest that it's really like, you know, as Lance Armstrong said, not about the bike. It's really just about universal access to like safe, sensible transport and being able to like get around in a decent way shouldn't be about having enough money to have like a cool car on like on street or having the sort of the body to ride a road bike or drive a car. Like it's about young people and people who don't have money and just being able to be able to get around. It shouldn't be like too hard. So why uh, did you have some highlights? I was, from responses? Well, or? it turns out my email address is a little bit harder to find on the internet than Pete, so <laughs> he borne the brunt of people who took the time out of their day to, to email. But um, no, I read, I read all of the, the kind of the comments on, on there and basically it devolved into a kind of discussion amongst interested parties, mm. at times passionately, about some of the things we've been talking about. So the question of registration, the, the kind of the basic question about separated infrastructure but no I, I didn't receive any particularly interesting incensed members of the public getting in touch to share but what I would say and this is just an anecdote is that um, I was having a chat with somebody who used to be a comment moderator for the ABC mm-hmm. news and what they said which has stuck with me and this was a conversation well before we started this research was that in Australian media if you publish a piece on um, violence against women or about cycling there will be a rush of aggressive comments to deal with in the moderation of stuff and that they were two outlier topics Mm. and i'd always put that in that haha isn't that interesting kind of basket but now that we're starting to do this work like that question really returns that there's something particular about both the way in which gender performs itself um in australia 
but also the, the cultural role of the automobile in, in that, that there's something, especially when those topics start to get linked, that um, let's just say people on the internet want to talk about mm, a lot. It's very triggering. It's very triggering. Also, like to add on to what I was going to say before while you were talking is that what's so striking about when people respond to you is like how much people want to push their own barrow. I mean, it's that classic thing when you go to a public lecture and then mm. the question time, someone asks a question which is really about their thesis uh-huh. or the thing which they're mad about or the way in which they're mad. I just, I said uh-huh in a way, it's like, I hope I'm not that person, but <laughs> maybe I am. But yes, yeah. it's... Um... That's super strike, striking. So like you can present one story and like it'll say uh, yeah. five different things and then they'll say, what about the sixth thing? Mm-hmm. And then you say, well, okay, sure, but what about one, two, three, four, five? And then not just go straight back. So yours, you know, you have a big emphasis in this article on the stats on road deaths and their causes, but that's not the thing people are responding to. They're pushing something else. Yeah. Was li- liability was really what was yeah. most triggering to people. And again, Rego. Rego, yeah. Like despite the fact we, we don't mention it in the piece, that's mm. the conversation people mm-hmm. want to have huh i wonder if you had an article about registration first of all i don't think anyone would be attracted to it and secondly would they then put a thing under there like oh, by the way i think cyclists should be registered that's mm. an experiment is this the sort of thing that you guys you have started this process of researching this question or asking these questions mm. what's on the agenda what kind of what approaches are you going to take are you going to be doing <laughs> are you going to be doing experiments on on cyclists, in, in a way, Mil- Milgram style. Yeah, Milgram style. Yeah, style. unbeknownst <laughs> to them. Honest, but, yeah, uh, but that's right. In Latrobe in the nineteen seventies, you didn't need to. Look, I guess I might just answer that by starting with an anecdote from personal experience, and then talking a bit about something we've already published. I know that's a very roundabout way to answer mm. your question, but you did ask an academic. Yeah, you know, you're not going to get a short answer. <laughs> this is what happens when you do radio with academics. Um, for me, this kind of kicked off as a as an area of inquiry so not necessarily the precise tenor of where the research has gone and it's going to go in the future but the fact that this is research worth doing when I was riding my um, my bike down leafy old Rathdown Street in Melbourne on a very lovely summer afternoon and I was just in some kind of reverie of just enjoying riding home at the end of a day's work um, and somebody uh, cut in front of me in the bike lane and there was no accident everyone was fine but as the car turned and I could see into the driver's window the entirety of the inner um, of glass pane of his window was covered in spit this guy something had happened in the course of his day and he was just he was literally frothing with anger about something that I had apparently done to aggrieve him. So he spat on the inside of his own window. Spitting, it's, it's froth. he was frothing, frothing. Uh-huh. literally frothing. And when it was that kind of encounter happens, and as soon as you see somebody like that angry, your own like adrenal system mm-hmm. runs, because you're not entirely mm. sure what's going on, but you yeah. know it's, not, it's no, no good. good. <laughs> um, and as soon as like, you know, I continued on on a lovely summer's afternoon, and I can start to like unpack that little encounter, it was like there's nothing about that level of anger that is easy to explain like mm. what makes people that angry at the sight of a cyclist exercising their right of way with um with my co-author in new zealand um kirsty um, wild at university of auckland we're writing about like surplus antagonism and we mean that it's like surplus to need mm. especially because we feel that both in australia and in new zealand where it's equally a problem that there is like ample space maybe not boundless planes to share anymore but like ample space compared to somewhere like tokyo or whatever else mm. so why the aggro we're, we're really interested in this question we don't have any 
we don't really have a, 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 a sufficient response yet. But you can, I'm sure one one approach is to put more articles on the internet and see what kind of we, <laughs> or not. We are in, we are intending to do that. And right. in fact, last Thursday we committed to writing not one but two books simultaneously. And one of them is going to be like a trade paperback where we have all of the arguments, ah. and that will be like arguments which are kind of grounded in syntheses of different statistics. And that's really about trying to pick fights but with using reason and persuasion mm-hmm. so that then the scholarly book which we're running at the same time can be serene and scholarly and have photographs and be pretty mm-hmm. but won't have any like less le- less odious rhetoric less passion less arguments less fighty do you hope that these books will become sort of time pieces one day or do you think that this kind of conversation or problem is here to stay i'd like to so my sons are six and three years old and i'd like to be able to present this to them as like really curious history mm-hmm. In the same way that penny farthings look ridiculous now. Yeah. Um, I wonder. And we did touch on the, the mention of where's the rage come from. One of the barrows I wanted to push on this one is around is you mentioned Japan as being someone that doesn't really have this aggro, but Australia and New Zealand do is there some kind of link to the national psyche of colonialism here around? Y- yes, but how, do, like, in, like in an epistemological <laughs> sense, really how do you know and how do you study it? Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's anthropologists like Gus Unhaj who've talked about, like, as Australia's invasion anxiety. And that's one of those things which is kind of pithy and appealing, but the more I read through it and thought about it, I thought, you're onto something super interesting, I can't deny it, but I also can't. No, mm. but I think we can study it historically because we can say that at least at one at one time there was not, and another time there was. So these things do emerge and decay and change over time. Yeah, that and we can have traces of that. That's where comparative stuff can come in, and that's and so the work I've done on liquor licensing benefits from that. If you can look at it was different once, and it's different in different places, and there seems to be a role for the system of colonization yes. in this because it defies easy explanation. Mm at least at at arm's length it does. In the heat of the moment, it seems obvious that people hate cyclists, but um, yeah. you sort of end up thinking about pretty big picture questions about what's going on here. I suppose, like, patterns of land use and the kind of gendered class relations that people have, and which are mediated by politics and law and ethics and other things like that, of course really shape how we regard one another in certain contexts and who rightfully or wrongfully occupies a space. Yeah, I think that's... And clearly to those people, to those motorists who are aggrieved by the presence of cyclists on the road, there is a very strong perception that they wrongfully occupy a space which is rightfully occupied by the motor car. That's clear. I think rights are a big part of this. Mm. And I will close. I think this is my last question, but we've had... The cycling's always in the news in some fashion. Either um, somebody died or (laughs) we're deciding whether they should have been wearing a helmet or, in the case of this week... The tax are back. So mm. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. It's a buoy tax, but somebody throws, um, what do you call them? A, little a carpet uh, tax. Carpet tax. Yeah, nasty things. On the bike lane uh, in queue. Yeah. Any perspectives on that? Yeah, we, we wrote a piece on the buoy tax. And then one of the responses, uh, comments this week was the police said, yeah, well, we can't do that much because most people don't seem to like cyclists so they're not helping. That was the... Mm, nice. Yeah. Sorry, can you just repeat that because I'm deaf. The... Um, this, the police comment about the tax this week was that they said we 
we're trying to investigate, but the general public doesn't seem to like cyclists, so we can't really make any progress. Right. Um, I guess, like, one of the things that we were talking about in that in that paper is how hard it is to conduct a criminal investigation into something that was happening for a period of about 12 months repeatedly in basically the same geographical situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet in that time, the farthest Victoria Police got was a couple of grainy pictures of somebody pulling aggressively on a bike pump which was chained to a fence. Um, there were some incredibly, like, good police police officers who mm. were sympathetic to the case. So the person mm. giving lines to the media probably um, wasn't Senior Sergeant Mark Standish who deserves a shout out for his calm, patient and like calm, patient engagement with um, Melbourne's road cycling community over mm. a period of frustrated months. Mm-hmm. But f- where we got to with the paper that was looking into that was how like Q is not Fallujah and Yet this is a space which can't be made safe for a group of people who sit at the intersection of a number of different, and I guess this is stereotyping, but mm. who sit at the intersectional the most um, vertices of privilege, yeah. right? Mm. Professional, largely male, riding you know expensive carbon fibre mm. road bikes in their recreational time, um, and and that space in queue. Um, which for international listeners is one of Melbourne's leafy green wealthy suburbs. Um, If you can't police that space, then what does this say about space safety policing in our, in our city? So the fact that the, that the tack is back and he might not be a person. It could be just some tradie with a hole in the bottom of the U.S. going to lay. We don't, there's nothing we don't, we don't know, but I suppose we also, we imagine that there is this thing called policing in an investigative mode yeah. Um, uh, but it, I don't. I mean, like, okay, clearly they're homicide detectives mm. and they work really hard. But I think that in general, that's not how policing works. And so it's a kind of a fantasy that we have that we are policed. It's like in. Uh, have you seen the Big Lebowski, the movie? Oh yes. Well, yes, his definitely. car gets stolen, and then I can't remember when his car gets stolen or when it gets returned, full of someone's shit. Yeah. <laughs> but he asked the uh, police officer, like, "Have you caught the guy?" And yeah, the police officer goes goes oh yeah we got them work them in shifts <laughs> no but that showed that there's a disjuncture between what you think they're doing and well there are yeah other yeah i like so i had there's another whole other kind of can of worms and story but i happened to be in marysville on the day that it was destroyed by bushfire and it, in hindsight there's this really interesting idea that like i think many people had that day that that there was a they with a capital T who were going to come and knock on everybody's doors and like let everybody know that there was going to be a devastating bushfire and get out. They didn't tell me. There is no they. There's, That's there's, unsettling. To there's know just there us. There is no they. Um, I, I like it. There's a cold wisdom to it. Um, and it's the same with the attacker. We don't know who he or she is. And as far as the cops go, there's no they investigating it. Anything else you'd like to add? We didn't cover something. I just want to quote Big Lebowski now. Okay. <laughs> Have you got another Big Lebowski quote to chuck in? Uh, there are Nazis, dude. There are nihilists. <laughs> nihilists? God! Say what you will about the tenets of National Socialism! I leave it to the ethos! <laughs> that blew up my microphone. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I can just you can see that you have B-roll now for the end of the podcast. <laughs> Anything else you'd like to add, Tom? Somebody's going to come and... A big favourite Big Lebowski quote? I look to my eternal shame. I haven't seen the Big Lebowski oh, oh, I keep putting it on the list and it doesn't appear on Stanflix and... This has to be addressed. At yeah, some point. look, you know, one um, of the great films, un-Australian or something, yeah, and un-American. No, I, I think I actually would like to return to one of the yeah. things about um, the question of 
colonialism and, and cycling is that it might not be present in the intention, but it's certainly present in the roads. Touche. Yeah, and so it's it's something that is both, as, as, you, as Pete was saying about the kind of cultural assumptions of the way colonialism deploys itself as an attitude might be incredibly hard to like locate in a moment of furious disagreement between strangers, but it's it's the infrastructural perspective is deeply colonial and that's something that needs to be addressed in thinking about how we relate to one another here in Australia and that's that's why if you're thinking about cycling in cities like that's that has to be part of the story we are, you can't we are have not a road bike no and, and there, were, there has been a land appropriation process right that's kind of what the 19th century was about mm. in this country and that's completely blanked out and disavowed by most people and like all kind of military and you know, causing military engagements with space, road use is a part of that. Like it's a deeply mil- like roads were built to facilitate mm, the, right. logistics the, of- the logistics of armed forces and that mm. and trade. And those two things are part of our history here. And so any account of the road bike that doesn't think about the deep history of the road as culturally insufficient for a colonial state. I'll buy that. All right, What's thanks everyone. We might be listening to this this must be the place episode about birds rights and rage or maybe i'll retitle it we'll see but interested in whether this episode of this must be the place also gets some aggro because <laughs> we don't normally get any aggro it's usually quite uh reflection on our podcast but maybe we've touched the third rail send send emails to tom this time yeah tom i'll, I'll put your email on <laughs> T-O-M-A, it's, it's a public service somebody needs to yeah. take care of pete's unconscious because right. he copped it last oh, week I copped it. That, was, that was interesting <laughs> i learned something thank you very much you have been listening to this must be the police bye crash test on his way. look to the side see the friends and the teachers they'll only walk from the cars to the bleachers the body is great but keep it in its place and don't play street walk again look up look up behind the track look up and see the world at large look to left and look to the right look to left and see